Hey, good morning. I'm Cameron. I'm the lead pastor here at Christ Community Church. Um, uh, there are a few times when you have to ascend the hill knowing um, that something's going on you can't do anything about. And so um, I just wanted to share with you that my daughter-in-law may be in the process of having a miscarriage. Um, and so um, uh, I feel the weight of that. And so um, just so you know, it's not anything, I, I just, if you could be praying for me, um, I need this passage. Um, I, need, uh, I need the gospel to uh, help get through that and help them get through that, as I'm sure it's going to cause a number of questions uh, about God's goodness. And so um, we don't know for sure yet, uh, but um, it, it does not look good. And so um, you sure can. Thank you. All right, if you would be turning to Colossians chapter 3, we'll be in verses 1 through 4 this morning. Um, as we continue our journey through the book of Colossians, it's, in, it's very important that we remember what is, the, what is the main thrust. What is it that Paul is trying to communicate to us? Uh, and it's, all, it's a couple of different levels, but one of the big things that he is trying to get us to understand is the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. And it's very important that we recognize that that is not a, a disembodied truth. That is not a truth that is so far up here that it has no impact on what's going on down here, right? And so uh, think about how uh, that's going to be one of the questions that, that Devin and Ashley probably have. Uh, how is Christ supreme? How is he sufficient in the midst of this? And so, um, so that is something that is a very, it's very important that we remember that's a very embodied and earthly reality. Now, what we're going to hear this morning, though, is that because of who Christ is, his supremacy and sufficiency, that we must often raise our eyes from the things of the earth, that we must often turn our gaze to where he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And that's not that we become of no earthly good because we are so overtly heavenly minded. No, that's that we would be first heavenly minded so that we might be of some hopeful and earthly good. Right, Because to just look at the evidence of the world and try to have hope for what's going on, it's just tough. As you look around, as, as North Korea is, is really threatening to blow Guam out of the ocean, and, and now they're saying that Venezuela is actually gearing up for war against us, and that it's a very good likelihood that we're heading toward a third world war uh, in many respects. That's very frightening. And not only do we have that, but we have what happened in Las Vegas, right? Uh, which actually happens, I think, every weekend in Chicago, um, and so, or every weekend in D.C. And so um, it, it's, it's just, just difficult as we look around. Uh, I, I feel it for the Caltons. Uh, I'm so thankful that the Lord gave what he has given unto them, uh, but my heart is very heavy for them too. And so we just feel it. We feel the groaning. Um, and so there's our propensity to be very destructive to each other 
uh, makes it very hard. Uh, uh, the pastoral retreat that I went on, thank you for those of you who prayed for us. We had a great time, and we're all still qualified, I think, uh, barring any further evidence. Um, but we took a trip on Thursday to the Civil Rights and Human Rights Museum in Atlanta, which is near the Coca-Cola Museum. If you've not been, it's, it's incredibly well done. Uh, but it was, it was, it was hard. Uh, it was a very hard thing. In fact, I had to be consoled uh, by one of the workers, uh, which was slightly embarrassing, to be honest with you. Um, but she was incredibly sweet and gracious. And it's, they have this uh, counter experience, which is, um, it, it mimics the situation. I think it was in Tennessee where the students did the, 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 wanted to sit at the counter. And you see the people throwing stuff on them. And they're beating them and all this stuff. And so you have to put your hands on the counter and you wear these headphones and you close your eyes. Um, and it was... Um, and, and for those of you who know me, like being pushed, touched, like, and I don't know what's coming. I don't do well with that. Uh, if you didn't know that, you probably should. Um, and except for children, children are fine. Uh, it's probably just this upper upper half that I'm a little more sensitive about. So, uh, but it you you it feels like someone is breathing on your neck, and you're being pushed and poked and prodded and 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 incited. And there's a timer actually to see how long you can last. Um, and, uh, I, uh, I made it the entire time that it was the, the length of it. And, uh, I was so broken and Jan was looking at me and she had already pulled the tissues out and it was, I, I almost felt like she was like, there was going to be like a phone call. I was like, uh, we have a white person coming apart at the seams and we're going to need an ambulance like, uh, <laughs> in the civil rights museum. And so, um, but it's, it was so powerful and just how could we treat the image bearing this way? Um, and so I very much, the, the weight of that is very much on me. And so how gracious is God that I would have to preach on the day that my eyes are so tangled up in the things of the earth that he would call me, um, that if I had been raised with Christ, to turn my gaze to the right hand of the Father. And so um, the thing I want to ask you before we start, though, is, is what most influences the way you see the world and the way you interact with the world? This is a worthy question for us to think about because we're all being influenced by something, right? We're either being influenced by where we grew up, who we grew up with, uh, our experiences, uh, definitely shape how we see the world, how we see other people, how we see other races, how we see uh, other sexes, how we see our sexuality, all of those things are deeply influenced by our personal experiences as well as uh, the churches we've grown up in, the things that we've been taught, um, and, and so on. And so I think it's worth us oftentimes trying to orienteer and go, wait, wait, wait. What is it that's most driving what I think about this issue? What is it that's most driving how I'm responding? And the best question of all, is it the gospel that is most influencing? Not the gospel that you've fashioned in your own image, not the truncated gospel, as, as Peter has warned, I mean, I'm sorry, as Paul has warned us, but the, the gospel that declares Christ as supreme and sufficient, right? That's why that becomes so important, is that if you are using any other gospel, it will lead you into very dark and broken places, and you will become more an instrument and image bearer of Satan than you will of Christ, if you're not careful. And that doesn't happen in a vacuum. That has to happen in community. That's something we have to be able to talk about and bounce off of each other. Let me give you an example. One of the pastors that was there, a guy named Steve Maruzic, 
Um, he has this fantastic ability to see the gospel in every superhero movie and TV show ever made. I don't have that. Um, and so I see sometimes quite the opposite. I see oftentimes these idolatrous things trying to usurp uh, these various things. And so, um, and, but it was good to be around him because, because he was so passionate about it. And he's not, he's not just a, he's not a doofus. I mean, he's, he's a really bright guy. And, uh, and so it was helpful because it helped kind of make me see, okay, how I see the world is not I'm looking through a glass darkly. I don't see it all well. And we need each other. We need, and, and, and Paul tells us this in Corinthians. You are not the whole body. So how in the world is it that we think that individually we can see and understand it all? We can't. But we do have the banks of the river. The supremacy of Christ and the sufficiency of Christ. And you've got movement within the river. I'm not sure how wide it is, but I do know where the banks are. Um, and I know when I run aground of them. And if you think about most of the issues that we struggle with, we really are trying to usurp one of those two things. Either we're trying to say, no, uh, Christ alone, faith alone, grace alone, not sufficient. I need to add some stuff to this, or God needs to give me some more information or something, right? So th th Christ is salvifically insufficient. Or the supremacy. No, I will not bow my knee. No, I will not declare that he is Lord. Yes, I can declare that I am whatever I want to say that I am, regardless of how I've been created. Right? And so, so I think it's very important that we take stock. What is it that is influencing most how we see the world, how we... Um, how we comment on things, how we double down on things, and, and, and really what stirs us up. Because if it's not the gospel, um, it's going to lead us into some pretty dark places. Listen to what Dick Lucas says. He says, the chief business of the Christian is to maintain his relationship with Christ. That is our chief business, is to stay in union with Christ. Now, let me, let me just make sure you didn't hear something weird. Because some of you, I think, when you hear stuff like that, you think, oh, Cameron thinks we should just sit around all day and pray and read our Bibles and not do anything else. Is that biblical? Patently unbiblical. And in fact, what, what Paul's going to say to us through the rest of three and the beginning of four is, no, there's a whole bunch of stuff you're supposed to be doing, engaging in, and participating in. This is but raw material that's been given to you. You're being invited into this work. No, you're not supposed to just sit around and wait for uh, God to do something. You are to be the instruments, the hands and the feet. You're to be instruments in the Redeemer's hands, to use Paul's language. And so, so that maintenance of that relationship is so that we can interact with and change things in this world. One of the beautiful things about the Civil Rights Museum is how, much, how prominently the church features in that. Um, and, and so and she's certainly got a black eye on, in it in some respects too, but not in toto, not in toto. Um, and so, so we can powerfully make a difference through the supremacy and the sufficiency of Christ. So don't hear that as a zero sum. Now, Paul is moving into a section that is going to be an extended exhortation of what we're to do with all this stuff we've been talking about. That Christ hymn that he gave us in 1, 15 through 20. All that declaration of who we were and who we are now in Christ. His declaration of his ministry. His pushing against the philosophy and all of that other stuff. He now is going to say, all right, now here's, here's what you can do with it. But before he gets into that, he wants to make sure that we have a firm 
foundation in place, that we are rooted. Remember that language, that we are rooted so that what we build up is on the rock and not shifting sand, okay? So as we step into this, I want to actually back up to verse um, 23, and I'll read that verse through 3, 1 through 4. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom. And the these that he's talking about, so Sabbath days and all the things that, it, that, that not t- don't touch, don't eat, don't smell, don't do anything with. Remember that from Robbie's sermon last week. He said, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. That's a really important thing for us to think through. A lot of our view is just self-made religion. We're just making this stuff up as we go. Um, I've been listening to some, and don't, don't get excited, some radical uh, post-Christian feminists as of late. Uh, just because I want to hear kind of what they're, how they're thinking, what's going on, because they are calling for the burning down of the patriarchy. And as a male, I kind of want to know when the fire is going to get lit, just honestly, and, uh, and, and as the one standing at the highest point in the room. Uh, and so, uh, but it's been brilliant to listen to some of what they're saying. But what fascinates me is how what ends up getting concluded is this new kind of self-made religion. Uh, one of them is named Jamie Lee Finch, and she refers to her body as her, and she listens to what her body tells her as if she is disembodied from her body. And I'm going... That is so much harder than Christianity, actually. i got to be honest with you. Because uh, I eat Chinese food sometimes, uh, and it's I don't know what I'm... The, the dreams are weird. I don't trust my body. Uh, i got to be honest with you. And so, and so the self-made religion thing is... And he's just spot on. He says, and asceticism. That's, can we... You know, if I make myself hurt, if I deny myself, then God won't deny me. Does that make sense? Like, if I do... If I go ahead and control the suffering... God won't send anything because he's like, oh, well, Cameron's already taken care of because he's, he's wounded himself. As if God is in the wounding business only, right? And then he goes on to say, uh, and severity to the body, which fits in that, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the very thing you're seeking to use those things for are of zero value. They can't get you there from here. I can prove this in one statement. How many of you made um, New Year's resolutions in 2017? Come on, be honest. Let's see it. It's not rhetorical. How many of you are still, we're just, what you're killing them. Like they should make a documentary about New Year's resolutions. None of us, right? John, you are fibbing. No. Uh, (laughs) Or maybe not. I'm sorry. Uh, But, (laughs) but. We can't, like, we have all these great plans. We come up with all this stuff. We, we try, but at the end of the day, we end up collapsing into the indulgence of the flesh. As, as Herculean as our efforts are, they never pay off. Not for what we want. That's important as we now step into the text that I'm actually preaching. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. 
Now, Paul is continuing uh, his conversation about the resurrection. Remember how important that was in chapter 2 as he talked about baptism and you've been raised in newness of life and your, your debt has been canceled. It's been nailed to the cross. That is a fixed, eternal reality. And most of us or many of us or too many of us live as if that is still up for grabs. Then maybe the, maybe the whole debt hasn't been canceled. Or maybe, maybe I'm not all the way uh, actually truly redeemed, and if I were, what would my life look like, right? So I think we operate under this presupposition that if I'm saved, then perfection ought to be close behind, right? That, 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 now, is there supposed to be fruit if you're redeemed? Absolutely, and he's going to tell us that. He's going to say there are some things that you ought to do that, that are indicative of the imperative. And so he says, but if then you have been raised with Christ. That, now, what does it mean to be raised with Christ? Now, what are the wages of sin? Death. That was a nice, quiet Presbyterian response. Yeah. Usually Presbyterians are like, death! <laughs> so you guys are not very good Presbyterians, it turns out. That's great. So it's death. And if Christ had not risen from the dead, what would that mean that he is? Guilty. You understand? That was what so broke what was happening. That was what was so transformative, is that when he rose from the grave, it meant that whatever he had taken on had been dealt with. And he himself was not guilty. Even better, that has been given to us. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, which means that when God looks upon us, he sees not anything that you have ever done or ever will do, but only what Christ has done and is fixed for an eternity. Now, many of you are thinking, that just, man, that sounds like you're giving people freedom to act a straight fool. Y'all going to act a fool no matter what I say. Right? I mean, you're grown. We don't need an excuse to act a fool. No, what I hope I've given you is the freedom to worship and live out that reality. Right? Because, again, the world just, it crowds in. Think about what most of you struggle with. How many of you, honestly, you struggle with the way the world is going? You just really struggle with security. Like, you're afraid to go to big events. You're afraid to take your kids into certain situations. Like, the idea of going to the Civil Rights Museum in downtown uh, Atlanta, where you could get killed at any second, just driving alone, much less the angry mobs, um, uh, and being near the Coke Museum, right? So, so how many of you struggle with that, right? You're so, you're just afraid. You want safety. You want security. And that's what, that's what controls you. But in a fallen world, there's no such thing because the fall is within you, Right? You, you, it is within you, so you can't control it, nor can you do this for your kids. You can't expunge the fall from them. You cannot atone. Only Christ can. And so, and so here he's saying, if you've been raised with me, and that means something, if you know that your debt has been paid, and if you know that you are risen with me, then there's something you can do. And he makes these declarative statements. He says, here's what you need to do. Seek the things that are above. Right? Another scripture speaks to this. Christ himself said this 
Where your treasure is, there your heart is also. If you seek the things of the earth, what will happen to them? Moth will chew them up and thief will steal and rust will destroy. But if you have your treasure in heaven, what is it? It's eternal. It doesn't, it's, not, it's not going away. Paul speaks of this in 1 Corinthians 3 as well when he says, look, build with precious stones upon the foundation, not hay, wood, and stubble because hay, wood, and stubble is going to burn up. But precious stones, that, that will make it through the fire, as will even you if you choose to build poorly because of what Christ has done. And so what that tells us is that what we do in this life translates in some way, shape, or form into the new heavens and new earth. Now you may be thinking, well, I thought you said that God wasn't going to see any of that stuff. He's not. He's going to burn it all up. And we're not talking about sin. We're talking about works that have been prepared for us beforehand. Not works that save Everybody, I almost want to make you turn to your neighbor and say, we ain't saved by works. Well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, And you're not. Uh, It's not works that save you. Um, But it is works that affirm you. It is works that allow you to see the beauty of the love of God. It is works that help you to grow in maturity. You understand? So he's saying you need to seek the things that are above. What's above? What's up there? God the Father. Who sent Jesus? Remember, you're not being saved from him. You're being saved to him. Remember the passage from Hebrews where it says, Come boldly before the throne of grace to receive what you need in a time of trouble. Both mercy. Why mercy? Because we're sinners. And grace. Why grace? Because we need something for the way back. The pilgrimage. And so remember that Jesus, part of what Jesus died to do is for our prayers to actually be effectual and have some meaning that we could come to the very one who created the universe. And why do you think he says in a time of trouble, if there won't be trouble? And so he's saying, seek the things that are above. So God the Father and all of his grace and all of his mercy. How many of you would say, I don't really think I'm going to need to be reminded of mercy from here to eternity. I think I've got that pretty well down pat. How many of you would say, I, grace? No, I'm fine with what I have. I need nothing extra. I'll, I'll go out with what I have right now. No. No, we all need it, and yet it is not the thing we seek. We, we've been talking about this a bit. We talked about it in the pastoral cohort, that one of our... Uh, First moves, we even talked about in the deacon meeting, is when something goes on, our first move is what do we need to do to fix it? Not pray. And you may be saying, I think you all are disqualified. Yep, and we ain't got nobody better to replace us, so we'll stay with what we got. But we, we, we have been convicted, and it is something that we want to do. I, I do it, and I've talked about this before, in a, a variety of things. I, I, I'm, I'm a pragmatist, and I, and I actually believe I can do some stuff. Now, you may say, you can't get your lawnmower out of the places you seem to stick it very well. That's true. So if you want to come cut my grass as an act of contrition and love for Jesus, come help me out. Um, but, but know that what we ought to do is pray first and foremost. Not pray only, but pray for direction. Pray for what, we, what it is that we're going to need in any given circumstance. But Devin and Ashley, I don't, what else could I do? 
for, for, for the Carltons. What else could we do? We cannot give back the years that the locust is stealing or death is stealing. Can't. And you may say, well, then what's the point in praying? Well, that's exactly the point. Because you're going to need words to give. You're going to need wisdom to know what they need instead of operating according to some just inflexible rubric. So we should, we should if we are raised with Christ and we are being faced with things that are difficult, we should seek first the things that are above. The love of the Father, the working in wisdom of the Spirit, the, the application of Christ, the fact that he makes intercession for us, the fact that he can save to the uttermost. We should be praying for each other, for our children. That is the seeking of the things that are above. And that is where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And why, why does that matter? It means his work is finished. We're seeking out someone who has done what it is he said he would do. It's accomplished. It's finished. It's a fixed thing. That's why we read the Hebrews passage. This high priest is able to, his work is finished. He doesn't have to go on making sacrifice. We're not praying so that Christ gets up and goes, do we have any goats left in heaven? So I can kill one to hopefully make up for what just happened. And I hope he got here fast enough because, you know, we're kind of handcuffed on time up here, being eternity and all. That's not what we're doing. We're, we're actually seeking out the one who is seated and knows it all and has, has, has accomplished everything that has been needed to be ultimately accomplished for the thing that is most important, which is our redemption. So him being seated is good news for us. It also means that God received his offering as high priest on our behalf, and it was good. And so we, we, when faced with these kinds of things, instead of turning to the things of the flesh, the things that we can control, the man-made religion, we should turn our eyes toward where Christ is seated. We should seek. Now, seek is something that's an active thing. Because it's a, it's a called action, it means that we also have the propensity to not do it. Since he has to command it, it means that by nature we will not, we don't naturally do this, do we? We just don't. You may say, well, yeah, I don't talk to many invisible people at all, and that's probably healthy. But is God completely invisible? Is he not displayed so diversely, so beautifully in this room among each of you? Is he not displayed in creation? Is he not displayed in redemption and how things change? He's powerfully displayed in all things. And then he gives a second command. Now, now, once you've sought it out, okay, you've gone looking for it in the heavenly throne room, set your mind on it. Now, what does that mean? Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. He's saying, meditate, not just accept in terms of just some sort of bare propositional truth, but to actually meditate on, to ask questions of, to interrogate, to actually use, to, to, to engage, right? It's not saying God said it, that does it, and it's finished. No, it's saying God said it, now work through it. Because it has this beautiful display in so many different circumstances and situations. And this is where he's not talking to individuals. He's talking to a group of people. And this is important. So often, we don't let each other in. 
We don't invite each other into the way we're thinking things through because we're afraid somebody's going to judge us. We're afraid it's going to make us look less than. We're afraid it's going to somehow affect our dignity. We're afraid to say what's really going on. And we don't seek wise counsel. And we don't let each other know, hey, I am drowning. Or I feel like I'm about to start drowning. Or I need some help with this. Or this is how I'm thinking about this. Help me process this in the gospel. The hope of the small groups that we have here at Christ Community Church, the hope of the discipleship groups is that that is where we will hash through those things. We cannot grow weary in doing good with one another. We cannot grow weary in asking for prayer from one another. We cannot grow weary in confessing to one another. We are to set our mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth, because the things on the earth are passing away. We're talking about a friend of ours the other night who's trying to reincorporate some Greek mythology into her Christianity. Historically, that's not gone real well. I don't know if you guys know that or not. Not a big contingent for that. Um, Why? Why would we do that? Because, again, we want control. We want to set our mind on the things on the earth. We want people to look at us not as Christ or God looks at us, but we want to stand alone. We want to stand out. We want to make our own mark. And yet what Paul says is seek the things of God. Seek the things that are above and then set your mind upon them. Engage them. Use them. Are we doing that, church? Are we creative in our thinking? Are are we engaged at all? Some of you right now are completely disengaged. There's something on your phone that's really exciting. Right? We can't even do it for a few minutes. And so are, are we helping each other apply and process this? Do we know each other even well enough to know when we're hurting? Right? Are we just being called in for the postmortem? So how do we make that turn? Well, we make that turn first by recognizing that we are risen in Christ. You are a new creation. And no matter what anyone thinks of you, he has thought best of you. And God loves you as son or daughter. And that is an unchangeable reality. And that gives us a very firm foundation. No way I could do this. No way. If what I needed was your affirmation. And you, would, you might say, well, maybe if you were nicer. Well, that's the problem now, isn't it? I'm not. Maybe if you wouldn't, you know, show us the tip of the iceberg and make us wonder about the rest of it under the water. No, I'm, I give you pretty much the whole iceberg. I know that's not common. I know that some people don't think that's healthy because you can load the gun. Load the gun. Right? You're not going to take from me what Christ has granted You can't, and that's a beautiful thing, and that lets you off the hook, and that lets us off the hook of having to kind of navigate through that, right? And so what would it look like for a group of people to take seriously their risenness in Christ instead of always needing affirmation and always needing something, this push-pull, right? You say you need it, and then when it's offered, you push it away. What are we doing? So here, we should turn our gaze to Christ, who has completed what we can never complete, who has finished what we could never even start, who has said, I love you, and I I am king of all things, I've created all things, I'm supreme in all things, I'm sufficient in all things, and that is for you. 
is for you, not just for me. Because he could be all that and leave us out and probably seem better off. But that's not the point of the story. And he even doubles down. He says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. What does that mean? Your life is hidden with Christ and God? Tom Anderson said it this way, and I'm sure he got it from somebody else, but he was my mentor. And so he would say, you, sanctification is you spending the whole of your life discovering what is meant in your glorification. Let me say it another way. You spend the whole of your life discovering who you already are in Jesus. What a gift that you're not working into this mysterious darkness, this, this kind of choose-your-own-ending type book. Right? It's not, it's not an unfinished thing. No, what you are discovering into is, the, is what is a story that has been told and has a fantastic ending. What a gift that we get to live into that instead of into just kind of this, this what really would just lead us to despair and nihilism if, that's, if we had no hope. And yet Christ says, no, I, I, your life is hidden with me. I'm the high priest and I'm seated. It's finished. When I come in glory, it's going to be revealed. Now, not in a way that should cause us to fear, but in a way we should actually have hope and be excited by. I'm so weary of wrestling personally. I'm so, so tired of just the earthly fight. It just seems to go on and on. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of my own junk. I'm tired of the junk of others. I, I'm tired of this world seeming like it is convulsing and groaning under the weight of death. And yet Christ says, but your life, your life is hidden with me on high. A sure thing. That's why Paul other places speaks of the Holy Spirit as a seal. It's a finished work. And what a gift that we are free to use the means of grace to love each other well to offend each other and still be friends, to, to maybe think we don't really care for one another when we ought. The freedom that this grants us is unbelievable to tie in with Robbie's message from last week. Our risenness and Christ's finished work allows for us to truly be free. Not searching for that which is an unanswered question, but actually knowing the question has been answered beautifully and getting to discover how beautifully it's been answered. Isn't that amazing? This is what Andrew Lincoln, not of Walking Dead fame, just real quick, and I don't know how I know that. Uh, the heavenly realm centers around the one with whom they have been raised, and since he is in the position of authority at God's right hand, nothing, let me say that again, nothing can prevent access to this realm and to God's presence. And there can be no basic insecurity about the salvation they have in him and its final outcome. Did you hear that? There is nothing that can keep you from the throne of God except you being unwilling to go. There is nothing that can take your salvation from his hand except you ignoring it in toto and letting it wither on the vine, which you still won't lose it. You just won't have much to show for it. So what are you currently seeking? Right, so what is it that you're currently seeking out? And what are you setting your mind on? 
What gets the lion's share of your thought and time? Again, hear me clearly. If you're, if you're in a position where you are, um, there's some questions to be answered for you in life of any varying kind. I'm not saying sit around and only turn your gaze upward and pray only. Yeah, you still got to do things. But is the route through the throne room of God for which you've been given access, down back into those things? Or are you starting on earth and only when you've exhausted yourself and everything around you do you then turn upward? So what are you currently seeking and what are you setting your mind on? And more importantly, how is that affecting how you live? Because it is. It very much is. So the thing that we ought to learn from Colossians 3 is that we are called to cultivate the resurrected life. And I think that's incredibly important language. For some reason, I think that we, we take a very hands-off, passive approach to our sanctification and discipleship that is, that is actually patently and horrifically unbiblical. You are called to cultivate your resurrectedness. Now, how do we do that? Well, you seek the things that are above, and you set your mind on them. And as Paul having to command it, again, it's not going to be easy. They are not, in fact, they're not immediately easy. Again, talking to an invisible person? Reading a book that is thousands of, page long, thousands of pages long is complex. There's multiple versions of it. Like, how are we supposed to get from here to there with that? Well, you have to seek, and you have to set, and you have to cultivate, and you have to wrestle. You have to question. You have to do that in community. You have to test. God's not opposed to you testing, and John tells us to. John 1, uh, 1 John 4. Test the spirits to see if they are of Christ. He's essentially saying, do they declare that Christ is both supreme and sufficient? We have the banks of the river, but for reasons I can't explain, we keep excavating a wider canal with, no, with nothing to help us. We want to throw off everything and make up our own stuff. We want to listen to our own bodies with our brains that are encompassed in those own bodies, and I don't know how you know when it's wrong. How do you know it's wrong? So we cultivate the resurrected life by seeking the things of and setting our minds on Christ above because his work is finished. And amen. John Calvin says, we have taught that the sinner does not dwell upon his own compunction. If you want to win at Scrabble, that just means guilt. But compunction or tears, but fixes, listen, both eyes upon the Lord's mercy alone. May we be a people who fix our eyes on the finished work of Christ, who have been risen in him, who live in light of that resurrection, who cultivate that on a regular basis and do that as people who love one another, who love our community, who love this world fallen though it may be because it will not be destroyed. It's going to be purified to make all things new. And let us be contributing to the new heavens and the new earth and our resurrectedness because of where we have fixed our eyes. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the finished work of Christ. We give you thanks that he's seated, that he did exactly what you called him to do, and that that has been applied to us so that we are risen indeed. Just as he is risen, we are risen indeed. Thank you that our lives are hid with him 
and they are secured, and they are not to be tarnished by the things we do between the now and the not yet, and that they will be revealed in glory. Help us to daily seek to unpack more and more the beauty of that truth. God, help us, your people, to seek the things that are above. Help us to set our minds on, wrestle with, engage, interrogate, love, and come to know the things that are above. And help us to be a community of people who are not easily swayed with every wind of doctrine, who recognize that we can't create anything that's actually going to help us, not ultimately. And help us also not just to sit with our gaze turned upward and be of no earthly good. Help our heavenwardness, our resurrectedness, be a gift to this world. In Christ's name, amen.